We get started tonight with a, a lesson that will be our third in our study of Paul's little letter to the Ephesians. Uh, this is a power-packed letter. It is uh, jam-packed with the grace of God and the goodness of God. Tonight, I want to minister uh, a lesson that comes from our reading in, in the first chapter. We're probably going to be in this first chapter a little while, as you probably imagine when you saw the list of things inside of what we call our heavenly bank account. I've been calling it that because it's the things that are stored up for us in the heavenlies. They are not necessarily seen in the natural, but they can be. They are the things that influence the natural world, but they come from the realm of the spirit. Never think that the realm of the spirit is subservient to the realm of the natural because spirit is invisible. One of the mistakes that we make in humanism is thinking that we are at the highest end of it because we are, you know, we're the sort of the lords of the earth and therefore what is natural is what is top. Um, we flipped that dynamic in the last 300 years because for most of the world's history, they truly believed that it was the other way around. We mock the Greeks and the Romans for their mythologies. We, mock, we, we don't tend to mock the Hebrews for theirs because we often call that sacred scripture. But the mythologies, the things, the stories that we tell ourselves for thousands of years had that power dynamic flipped. The realm of the spirit was the highest realm the realm of the natural was subservient to the realm of the spirit. You need to understand that when you read the New Testament because that's the way they're thinking. You need to understand that when you're listening to Jesus, that's the way he's thinking. The spirit realm is at the top. The natural realm is not. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That's through our lens of translation. But sounds a lot more like this. Whatever you bind on earth has been bound in the heavens. Now, if we'd have said it that way, we don't say it that way because our lens is flipped. We think that what we do influences what they do. But the reality is, is probably much more the other way around. So keep in mind that when Paul starts to talk about your heavenly bank account, here's what you have in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's not saying, boy, that won't that be wonderful someday. You know, you, know, you don't have much now. But here's what you got to look forward to when you finally get home and you get to that place. No, he's saying that's the thing that really matters. That's what you really have. All of this stuff is not what you really have. This, the, your possessions are just temporal. Your body is not going to last forever. The stuff you think is big deals, a small deal. That has went on from time and eternity. This has an expiration date. And so when he points to the spirit versus the natural, he's pointing to the thing that matters. Uh, and so if, if we can think that way when we read, then we realize that we're tapping into the bank account that is not to come, but the bank account in which we already have. So one of those tonight is the subject of our lesson is called accepted in the beloved because this is a phrase that comes from our text and accepted in the beloved is a phrase that Paul makes. We're going to get into some things tonight that to me are quite fascinating. Paul has a unique phrase in this, one that he doesn't use anywhere else. Um, we have uh, another word that gets used only one other time in the entire New Testament, and Paul uses it right here in this phrase. In fact, both of those come right there in that title, accepted in the beloved. One's unique in Paul's writing, and the other is, is uh, found one other spot. Um, let, me, let me just start before I even read with a, a thought or two. I, I kind of Sometimes I, I, I like to sort of unleash some things before I get into the text that... that I've gotten used to doing this over the years as a way of finding where my first step's supposed to be because I use an outline sort of as a way to figure out what, where we're going and a couple of stopping spots, kind of like you got a map in front of you, you go, we're going to drive to such and so, but we're probably going to stop right somewhere in here and get a sandwich. I don't know where, and maybe we don't, but that's my destination. That's kind of how I treat this sometimes is go, I know I'm going there. What's the road to get there? Um, and so to kind of find where my foot falls, um, 
I want you to think about the fact that the posture of God as Father is everything Paul's writing to you, whether you're the Ephesian church or whether you're this Tuesday night group, he's writing to you as people who are in Christ, and those who are in Christ are also in the Father. And so in the hierarchical structure of the realm of the Spirit, it's not as if Jesus is you know, secondary and God's at the top, but Paul does point our eyes upward from the natural into the spiritual and through Christ, our access point. Think of it as the keyhole. Sort of the access point into the, to the heavenly bank account is Christ. Jesus becomes the way in. He, he becomes the door. In fact, he calls himself the door in John. So the way into my account, he's like my account number. He's the routing number and the account number all wrapped up into one. How do I get what belongs naturally to me in the realm of the spirit? I get it through Christ. In that mentality, um, let, me, let me say it this way. God is not sitting at the head of the table in the realm of the Spirit. We're heading into Thanksgiving. You're going to sit around tables. Um, if I go into my dad's house, my dad's at the head of the table. I don't, that's not something we talk about. Like, we've got to have a meeting. That's the way it goes. It's his house. He's the head of the table. If we go to my house, I'm probably the head of the table. But, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if I'm at the kitty table. At dad's house still. He used to be at the kitty table. You know, it's kind of moved up over the years at the different spots on the table. That sort of patriarchal head sits at the head of the table. I, I want you to think about, as you think, thanks, as you think about this, this celebration of this honoring of being thankful and feasting. God is not sitting at the head of the table spiritually. God's not even at the end of the table spiritually. God's serving the food. The servant in the room that walks in and puts everything and sets the table and brings all the food in and then cleans up and does the dishes, that's God. And if we could start to think that way, we might realize, and I'm going to step ahead of myself, it's not God's temporary posture. Like God is temporally in the heavens serving us, but someday... He's going to finally sit down at the head of the table and be the king of kings and the Lord of lords and rule over the universe. But he's not there yet. In the meantime, he's serving. Because if that's the case, then servanthood is a means to an end for Christians. It's not who we are. It's what we do to get what we really want. That makes servanthood a cloak and dagger. Like, I'm going to be good to you, but it's really because I've got this reward waiting for being good to you, being good to you. Serving you isn't my immediate response. It's the response I know I have to do. I'm a little bit of a salesman. I'm going to, I'm peddling something, so I'm going to bring in what I think you want, what I think you need, what'll sway you, what'll woo you, because at the end, I just really want you to make my check fatter. Jesus isn't serving so that at the end of the party, he gets to be the king. He is the king who serves forever. So he doesn't someday sit at the head. He's always the servant. If you can understand that and then realize that this is not a temporary thing for God. God is in the service business. Then you got to wonder two things. A, what's my call? My king is a servant. 
So what's your call probably? Mm, servant. B, who gets served? And so if my call then is to serve, who gets served is every one of his children. I'm not throwing you a curveball here and going, they all get served. No, we all get served by him. It's, it's heaven giving to humanity all of the goodness and the glory of God through the person Jesus Christ and all of the goodness of God comes to us, not in some temporary phase, but as the permanent representation of the everlasting Father. So this isn't the game God plays until He gets to do it His way. Because that's just a churched up version of God's trying to win, He can't, but someday He's going to come back and kill everybody that won't listen to Him because in the end, He just decides to do exactly what the devil has been doing this whole time. Because the devil was really right, He was just doing it the wrong way. And that's a horrible outlook on God and a, a, an outlook on God I refuse to be a party of. And so if God is in the posture of being a servant, then I am in the posture of being a servant as well, but also I'm the one being served. I am being served, and I don't mean worshipped, because we kind of think worship when we think served. I mean the Father is doing things on my behalf. The Father's blessing me. The Father's being good to me. The Father's feeding me. The Father's providing for me. That's what I mean by heavenly bank account. This isn't, a, this isn't to come. This is yours now. Here's our text. We read it last week as well. We read it again this week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, has blessed us. Done deal. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. These are texts we worked on last week. And last week we focused, look at five having predestined us to adoption as sons. That was our topic last week. And if, I hope you've spent a little time reviewing that in your heart and your mind. We've been adopted by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Tonight, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. I want to concentrate for a moment on that phrase, to the praise of the glory of His grace. It is... His grace that receives the praise from us. God is so good to me. God is so good to us that naturally out of us comes praise for how, how good His grace is. Please understand, our praise is not attached to us seeing good things happen in the natural. God isn't good because good things happen. We need to be careful about that. The Holy Spirit began to convict me of that a few years ago when I would... Say, boy, look at everything going on in my life. This is, this, and this is going to come up this week. You're going to hear this at Thanksgiving. Someone's going to say, boy, we, we got all this good stuff, and God's blessed us with good jobs, and look at all of our kids are here. We've got all this big table full of food. Boy, God is good. And they're not wrong. Everything they said is correct. But here's the absolute truth. If I didn't have a job, none of my kids came home. I had no food on the table, and I was starving to death. God is good. So God is not good because I have all of these things. God's good anyway. All right? And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not being nitpicky. I just want us to be a con cognizant of the fact that the goodness of God has anything to do with whether or not I have stuff. Because there's going to be times you don't have stuff. God doesn't cease to be good. There's going to be times in your life where you don't, you're not rolling around in goodness and favor and, or, or seeing all of the stuff we assume to be favor and uh, wealth and health and everything smooth. It would be the opposite. And when it's the opposite, God is good. Because the praise that comes out of us is due to God's grace. And God's grace is the fact that God has given us 
of his glory, who he is. I want to talk for a second about glory. We use the Greek word doxa when we talk glory. This is an interesting word. And here's why. In ancient Greek, and I'm talking Aristotle, Plato, Socrates era. Um, it, it held a, a, a bit of a different idea. It was to appear or to seem or to think or to accept. Just kind of depends on which philosopher is using it. But it, it had to do with... It had a little bit to do with perception. Like how you viewed. And I think it was Plato that believed that it was the, the non-rational side of you. It's how you felt when you saw something. Like, if you saw the glory, you had a response to something that wasn't real. Maybe a light in the heavens or emotion or a feeling. And it was the non-rational side of you that believed in something you couldn't touch. That was the, the way the Greeks thought of glory. But then the Septuagint comes along, and quick little 101, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the ancient text. The Greek translation of the Hebrew largely comes about as the world starts to transition to becoming a Greek-speaking world, at least the organized world. So about 200 BC, we land on a, a text that was put together by 70-plus Hebrew and Greek scholars. They, legend has it six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel came together, and all 72 of them brought their translation of the Hebrew into the Greek. And the legend has it that all 72 of them had it word for word. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> Having been around some translations, I don't usually buy the legend. But they landed on Septuagint, which is the, uh, uh, sept, the root for 70. Um, and, and so it became to be known as the Septuagint. It was the, the end result of this scholarly work that put the Hebrew into Greek. By the way, your New Testament writers were reading the Septuagint. They were not reading the Hebrew. So your New Testament writers were one translation away from the source at least. And so the reason why your New Testament sounds different than your Old Testament, if you're using a King James, is because your, your King James Old Testament was translated out of Hebrew. Their Old Testament was translated out of Greek. And so that's why they quote differently from time to time. But what happened is they start using words and then they start to pick up different definitions as we go along. So when the Septuagint takes the Hebrew word for glory and makes it Greek, they use the word doxa, but they don't use it in the context that Aristotle or Plato would use it. Instead, the word comes to mean behavior or the practice that is in worship. And by its very definition, it was a corporate word, not a personal word. So, it, so doxa would have only been used in a corporate sense. You didn't get to have a personal doxa. We had a corporate doxa. In other words, you didn't just see the glory of God. You saw the glory, but he didn't see the glory. The word was used in the sense of the universality of the glory of God, a word that, by which we now derive our word orthodoxy. So if something is orthodox, then that means it is believed to be a universal truth across church lines. What's an orthodox doctrine in Christian church? Jesus raised from the dead. Pretty orthodox. Kind of hard to get around that one. Universal truth across denominational lines, across space and time, across translations, and orthodox. Now, orthodoxy 
can be challenged. Orthodoxy should be questioned, absolutely. But the point of the word is that it is universally accepted and therefore a, that, that sort of a universal corporate practice. So if that's what we start to derive from the Septuagint, and Paul's reading the Septuagint, when he says the glory of His grace, it's the universally accepted truths about the grace of God. It's not Paul's opinion of what the grace of God is. It's Paul saying these are the orthodox truths about God's grace. So when you then unpack your heavenly bank account, it doesn't just apply to you. It gets to apply to her and him and her and him and her and him because it's the glory of God. It's not an individual. You're not graced with individual gifts from God. The church is graced with these gifts from God. Now, that might not seem like it means much right now, but I think it will when you get to understanding what it means to be accepted in the beloved because I told you a moment ago that Paul likes to use some words that don't get, maybe don't get used very often. Um, Paul's not a big fan of the word beloved. It's just not one he uses, but he uses it here, which is an interesting word because it's a word that's used quite often in the Gospels. I'm going to give you a little master's level um, Pauline understanding for a second, all right? We won't go on this too long. Scholars have been torn for a long time as to whether or not the Apostle Paul knew anything about the Jesus of the Gospels whether he knew of the Jesus as described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He would not have had any idea of the Jesus described in John because almost certainly that story wasn't floating yet (laughs) in Paul's day. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke versions are probably not yet put into print while Paul is alive, almost definitely not. And so scholars have been torn as to how much he knew because he never quotes Jesus in his writings. In all, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He never quotes Jesus. There's a passing moment in the book of Acts where a sermon he's preaching in the street, he quotes Jesus, which is interesting because he quotes a Jesus verse that's not in the Gospels. Um, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says, as our Lord said, which, okay, he must have said it. Paul said he said it. We don't have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke or John, but okay. So Paul, Paul doesn't have that link back, that direct written narrative link back to Jesus. Except here, in one of the only moments where Paul borrows a word that is used almost exclusively by the gospel writers about Jesus, which has led scholars to believe Either this is Paul's link that he does know the Jesus stories of the Gospels, or this has also been used as ammunition for people that want to say Ephesians was written by someone else at a later date, and they tack Paul's name onto it because they stick in a code word that sort of links Paul to the Jesus they were trying to find a link to in the first place. See, sometimes the master's level stuff is stuff you don't necessarily want to wrestle with or need to wrestle with, but there it is. It's to do with it as you will. But I do find it pretty fascinating that it is a gospel word. And by gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the kind of word that gets used all the time by the gospel writers to describe Jesus because it's Jesus that looks to them to be beloved. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to Matthew 3. Here's the most famous moment of it where Jesus is standing in the Jordan when he had been baptized Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him 
and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. This is what, um, this is what some scholars would call the Sophia of God. Sophiology of God is the study of the wisdom of God or the nature of the Spirit, which is by some scholars believed to be the feminine side of God. And the feminine side of God is represented by the dove gently coming down at the river and landing on Jesus. I also do a little bit of work at the end of Greater Than Jonah that the dove that leaves the ark ends up landing on Jesus at the Jordan River. And Jonah is the Hebrew word for dove. So, you know, do what you will with that. It's in there. Read on. Uh, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and sliding upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And, uh, and, and so loved beyond measure. Loved to the fullest. This is my beloved son, meaning that I cannot find a single area. Here's how beloved should be considered. I can't find a single area in which I do not love him. I am well pleased with him. The fascinating thing is that Jesus hasn't done anything. He hasn't healed the sick. He hasn't raised the dead. He hasn't walked on the water. He hasn't fed the 5,000. He hasn't confronted one Pharisee. To this point, we haven't even seen Jesus since he was about two, but one time at age 12, in the temple, teaching the doctors and lawyers, asking questions and answering questions. And when his mom confronted him, he said, I was about my father's business. And then 18 years of silence. We don't get anything out of Jesus. And then as one of the gospels says, at about age 30, boom, here he comes walking up to the Jordan River. So 18 years of just being without doing the miraculous, even though he's capable of the miraculous, which tells me that being the beloved had nothing to do with his performance. It had to do with who he was. And you are beloved to somebody independent of your performance. Maybe you're beloved to your parents. Maybe you're beloved to your spouse. Maybe you're beloved to your kids. But there's someone in your life that loves you immensely and can't love you anymore. And if you can't think of anyone in the natural, my goal is to let you know that there is someone in the realm of that which matters more than the natural and that which is the highest of them all. And that is the spirit that does love everything about you and every room that you're tucking secrets away in. He loves his beloved. And so Jesus becomes a beloved. But I want you to notice the pronouns. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he's, Matthew has, has the spirit pointing to Jesus, but it's so that everyone at the Jordan can see the belovedness. Now watch the change in Mark's version of the same story. In Mark 1.11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So who's right and who's wrong? Here's one of those, the Bible contradicts itself moments. Matthew says, this is my beloved son. Mark says, you are my beloved son. I'm here to propose that I don't think either of them are contradicting the other. I think that one is from the point of view of the crowd and the other is from the point of view of Jesus because the same voice says different things to every single person. I can preach this sermon, teach this lesson. One of you will walk out and say, man, here's what that said to me. And you'll be talking in the parking lot and the other one will go, I don't know, I didn't even hear that, but I'll tell you what it said to me. And if you both went home and wrote down, what did Paul White say tonight? There's a really good chance you'd have the same theme and you'd have different words because it's how you hear it. But I love it that Matthew and Mark give us both versions of the story because here's what's important. The world needs to know that Jesus was the beloved one, but Jesus needed to know it too. You see, every person in the world needs to know that God loves them, but every individual person needs to know that God loves them. 
So it's not enough for us as the church to go, hey, ladies and gentlemen, God loves everybody. In fact, the church is great at standing up on platforms and going, God loves everyone until the unlovable comes in. And when the person dressed wrong, acting wrong, looks wrong, bad rep, we know your stories, we don't like you. When they come in needing the very love that was projected on the church sign, come see us, everybody's welcome, God loves all of you. And then they come in going, I'd like some of that love. And we go, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's another church down the road that takes people like you. But we've got some standards in this house. And instantly we find that the revelation of this is my beloved son is not the same thing as you are my beloved son. And so I'm glad that the gospels give us both because even Jesus needs to personalize, I am the beloved son. And why? Because he comes out of the water and he walks into the wilderness. And the Bible says he goes into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And the first words out of the devil's mouth are, if you are the son of God, turn the stones to bread. So he goes to work on that identity. And it's probably because the devil's there. <laughs> like, I know I'm, we're, we're, I'm, I'm getting colorful, but go with me. The devil's there at Jordan. And he hears the, the spirit say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And maybe the devil, like all of us, thinks, well, I think I heard that, but I wonder if he did. So you go to work on Jesus to see what Jesus knows about Jesus. And lo and behold, Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so it's a, it's a revelation to the world, beloved. It's a revelation to the individual, beloved. I think we ought to copy that. I do think we need the revelation to the world gospel. Hey, God loves you. Hey, God loves you. But I think it's more important that we show the love to the individual because we're all good at telling people God loves them and we're not near as good at showing people God loved them. And that's the great challenge of Christianity. It's easy to, to write of it to preach of it, to sing of it. It's different to do it. And I'm not condemning any of us. I'm saying that if that exists in the text, it probably exists for us as well. Let me show you another Sorry. beloved. Can you say that again? I will say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you another beloved. Matthew 17. This is what we call the mountain of transfiguration. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then we get a tack on that does not exist in the early Matthew text. That does not exist in the Mark text at Jordan. And the tack on is two words. Hear him. Our English translators put an exclamation point on it. This is an interesting moment because it's the same phrase that God used at the Jordan when Jesus comes out of the water. This is my beloved son. But he has to say hear him because what happens is sometimes we cloud the message of the beloved with all of our theology and all of our ideas. And what happens at transfiguration is as they see Moses and Elijah and Jesus, Peter goes, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three little tents and put you and Moses and Elijah in them. And you know what his idea is. Let's build little houses so you can live here. And God takes Moses and Elijah and boom, they vanish. And a voice comes from heaven and goes, this is still my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the one you're supposed to focus on. Get Moses out of your head. Get Elijah out of your head. Get the beloved. Which is why, once again, I go back to this message. The centerpiece, the center pole of Christianity is Jesus Christ. Everything else is ancillary. Everything else has got to, the voice has got to be pulled down. You got your law voice of Moses and you got your prophetic voice of Elijah. And they are great and fun to have around when you, when you need, when you're having church. We, we love them.
We love the, the spectacular Moses and Elijah's. But when Jesus enters the room, everything else is, doesn't have a voice any longer. Only Jesus counts. So only the beloved matters. And then that knowledge leads Jesus to this prayer. In John chapter 17, verse 23, I am in them. Jesus talking to his dad. I'm in them. That's us. That's, us. that's the disciples and us. Technically, it's us. And you are in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and look at this and have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus prayed 2000 years ago over his church. Father, let them know that you love them the way you loved me. And this is why we need to preach that God loved his son. Because if we can get people to believe that Jesus was the beloved, then we're built off of that knowledge. Jesus said, Father, you're going to then show the world that they are as loved as I am loved. And I don't know that we are teaching that and preaching that because sometimes we're denying people access into the revelatory love of God because we don't agree with their lifestyle or because we know they've sinned or because we don't like the way that they think or the things that they're doing. But God did not put his love on Jesus at the end of his ministry. He put his love on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry so that you would know love isn't contingent upon what you do. It just matters who you are. So if you can get people to know they are part of that family, by default they must know that they're loved because Jesus doesn't have the revelation of love at the end of his life. If he did, then we'd have a reason to argue and say, hey, Jesus didn't even know he was loved until he did everything right. If you do everything right, you can have the knowledge that you're loved. But instead, he received the love of God early. Let's go back to that Pauline phrase from Ephesians 1.6. I know I'm working that backwards. I'm doing that for a reason. I just spent minutes, a while, on beloved. But I want to go to accepted. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What a phrase. Accepted. Um... Paul doesn't use it anywhere else. He didn't use beloved anywhere else. Paul's in a zone right here. You know, sometimes you're borrowing off of other ideas. If you write a song, you're borrowing off another song you wrote. You preach a sermon, you borrow off other sermons you wrote. You write a book, you borrow ideas you used. And then sometimes, boom, where'd that come from? That's a brand new melody. That's a brand new chord progression. That's a brand new take on something I hadn't thought of before in that text. And in this moment, Paul has some sort of brilliant spirit-led epiphany to drop a phrase on the New Testament, on the New Testament psyche of you are accepted in the beloved. I've never used accepted and I've never used beloved. And beloved really only appears in the gospels about Jesus and accepted only appears one other time in the whole Bible. And Paul borrowed it in a moment to tell you that you are accepted. Look at the other one. This is the only other moment in the scripture. And you're coming up on Christmas. You're going to hear this in church. Luke 128, the angel says to Mary, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly 
favored one is the same Greek word Paul uses in Ephesians 1.6 when he goes, you are accepted in the book. You know what he could have said? By the praise of God, of the glory of God's grace, he has made you highly favored in Jesus. You are highly favored in the same way Mary was handpicked by God to bear Christ. What a moment of revelation for Paul. Who, I don't know how familiar he is with the nativity story. No one's bothered to write it down in his lifetime. And yet, he uses the same word to say, you know what, you are in Christ highly favored, highly graced. You're, the Lord is with you highly favored, some translations, highly favored above all women. And Paul uses that for all of us in Christ he used it in this particularly interesting tense, too. We talk about perfect tense, past tense, present tense. Paul used his word in the past tense, meaning that the word has to be used in connection to the previous clause. It's not perfect tense, like karitu or, or tetelestai. It is finished. It was finished then. It is finished now. It shall ever be finished. It's past tense. And past tense relies on the previous clause narratively. And the previous clause then has to do with the glory of God's grace, which means we were accepted at the moment God accepted Jesus. He has accepted you in the beloved. Past tense. When he called Jesus beloved, he accepted you. All right. Rewind. When did he call Jesus beloved? <laughs> this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Paul doesn't just reach back and get the word. Paul throws it in the past tense and says, when God called Jesus beloved, he picked you. Man. Jesus didn't do anything. And God accepted him. What do you have to do? Nothing. And God accepts you. And if that's true, we cannot be rejected because we're already accepted in Christ. Just can't, you can't be rejected if you're already accepted. I think fear of rejection controls us in our relationships. I think that's true between you and me. I think it's true between my wife and me. I think it's true between the stranger and me. I think it's true between me and my God. You too. Think about it. If I'm afraid of an area in my life, it's going to strain. If I'm afraid of an area with Natasha, it's going to strain the relationship with Natasha. If I'm afraid of releasing something about me to you, it's going to strain that moment. We might be okay until we hit that moment and it's going to be strained. I'm not going to be able to live lightly around you because I have a place or a space that I'm afraid to release to you. This is why we keep some secrets close to the vest. And you need to keep some secrets because you can't share your heart with just everyone because there's going to be people in your life that step all over it and destroy it and run over you and laugh while they do it. So you got to be careful who you release that to. But when you release yourself to relationship, be it the stranger, be it your spouse, be it your family, be it your church family, you're doing that to relieve yourself from fear because you think you've entered an environment where there's perfect love. 
Perfect love casts out fear. If people perfectly love what you lay on the table for them, you don't have any reason to believe that they'll hurt you or that they'll harm you. I think a lot of it's fear of rejection. I'm afraid to let you see what I really am because then you won't like me anymore. I'm afraid to tell you how I really feel because it'll hurt your feelings or you'll get mad at me or you'll be disappointed in me. And man, we're bad about this in church, especially in ministry, is that we're afraid to let people see what we really are because we're afraid they won't think we're godly. And I think people are yearning for that kind of honesty in a way. I think they're yearning for their leadership to be that honest. To say, you know, this guy's, this gal's not perfect. Here's the problem they have. You go, well, yeah, but I can't let people know that. Nobody will trust me. And that's why we can't have d- relationships built on truth and trust. Because we're afraid of being rejected. But if you knew you were accepted no matter what, you wouldn't care what you threw out there. Because it wouldn't matter. This is what we try to do to our kids. We try to create an environment where, hey, honey, you're accepted no matter what. It doesn't matter what you did. You can come home. Right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what you did. You, get to, you can come home. It doesn't matter what you've done tonight. You can call me. I'm not going to jump you. I'm not going to cut you down. I'm going to do what I can. Doesn't matter. No fear of rejection from your dad, from your mom. That way you can live freely. And sometimes we're afraid to even set people that free because we're afraid of what they'll do. And that happens in the church too. So we're afraid to let people have that much liberty for what they might do with it. Only in an environment of acceptance can we be all we're meant to be. Only when we know we are absolutely accepted in Christ are we able to live fearlessly. Are we able to live freely? Because if we don't think we'll be accepted, there's a bunch of stuff we won't try because we're afraid that we won't be accepted in who he is. Now, each week where we try to put our final footfall is in a way in which we can apply this to our life. And if you'll notice, I don't spend a ton of time on these. I feel like the identity you earn at the front half of the sermon is what you're supposed to take into the last five minutes of it so that you walk out and you do something with it. And I kind of feel that's the way Paul writes. Because you notice how Paul's real thick with the identity stuff. And then when he gets to the ought to's, they're kind of brief. Sometimes they're almost machine gun-like. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You go, gosh, why didn't he explain it more? You go, you don't have to explain it more. You just gave him three chapters on identity. You need to give them something to do with it, but you don't have to give them details because the Holy Spirit's going to uniquely do it. So if you knew you were accepted in the beloved, what could you do with your life? You wouldn't be afraid you'd be rejected. What could you do with your life? What could you do with your relationship with God? Maybe it's this, Ephesians 3, 10, 11, and 12. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities in the heavenly places. This is the verse that kicked off our church series. You remember we talked about what, or that, that kicked off our cross series, that the church is the one supposed to be presenting the power of God. But look at 11 and 12. We do it according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom? In whom? That's whom is a person. It's not my knowledge by which I have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. It's in Christ that I have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. In Jesus, if I knew I was accepted in the same way Jesus is accepted, maybe... I could be bold because I would realize that I have constant 24-7 access in Christ to the Father. That's what I think we would do if we knew we were accepted. We'd live boldly. We'd live confidently. We would know we weren't condemned. Therefore, we could live confidently. 
We could walk out into this world and know that we are accepted in the beloved and we are highly favored. So one more time, don't mistake the favor of God with good stuff happening to you. This stuff is yours in the realm of the spirit. Bad stuff's going to happen to you. It doesn't mean you are not highly favored in the Lord. If I could, so why are we, why do you keep going back to that? I'll tell you why, because my entire life I've watched Christians think there was something wrong with them because there was stuff going on to them and going on around them. And so if bad stuff started happening, they started figuring out whether they weren't given enough money, if they need to change their prayer life, whether they had sinned, if they need to change churches, if they'd missed God somewhere. And they were always lining up like financial prosperity and physical prosperity and mental prosperity with obedience to God. And so anytime the stuff started to fall apart, they would assume they were doing something wrong. You were made accepted in the beloved the moment Jesus was made accepted in the beloved. Nothing you do changes that. God's favor doesn't change because you change. So you give him glory when things are good. You give him glory when things are not. You never stop thinking you're his accepted and you're his beloved. And living out of that, if you truly believe it, would give you confidence and boldness. Paul didn't say it would give you health, wealth, and wisdom. But he did say it would give you confidence and boldness. And, and that's better. I know we think the other is better. The other's temporal. But confidence and boldness is something that no one can take away from you. Inflation can't mess that up. Job loss can't mess it up. Not if it's in Christ. A lot of our confidence and our boldness is in having money and having stuff and having influence and having friends and having people and having a platform. And the minute you lose it, confidence and boldness is gone. A lot of people you know in life that look confident and bold are not. They're just propped up by a lot of stuff. The moment they lose this stuff, the confidence and the boldness is gone. What looked like a lion is just a little kitty cat, a really scared one. But meet someone who knows their beloved in Christ. All hell around them has happening. And yet there's a confidence and a boldness in knowing who they are that keeps them moving forward in the midst of the storm. That's what caused Peter to put his nets down and go follow Jesus. And go in the middle of a world going to hell, I'm going to go follow that man. He looks like he knows something I don't know. Well... We're still following him for that reason to this day. You are accepted in the beloved, all of us. Father, I thank you for, for, for the knowledge that you gave to Paul in this great first chapter of Ephesians and how that it's not some left field revelation that has no basis in Christ. It's so saturated in the story of Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you that we get to go watch Jesus, see how beloved he is, have an awareness of how beloved he is, and then pray that same belovedness over all of us. Thank you for that, Father. That's the kind of seed that takes root in our heart and gives us a confidence that we too are accepted in the beloved. Now, Father, show us what to do with it. I got a feeling it has to do with boldness and confidence. And as you help that to grow, as that happens in us, Father, may we always be cognizant that it is the praise to the glory of your grace. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen.